Independence. We strive to achieve it early in life and then invest significant time, money, effort, and resources to hang on to it. Yet as it turns out, it is virtually impossible to achieve independence without being interdependent. So I must ask you then, have you weaved your web of interdependence? One that is strung together with reciprocal relationships in which everybody benefits? Today, my guest, Dr. Carl Pillimer, the Hazelie Reed Professor in Cornell University's Department of Human Development, is actually going to dive deeply into what interdependence is, why it is so important to each and every one of us, and why, if we haven't already weaved our web, there's no time like today to start. So let's get the conversation started, shall we? Colin Melner rethinks aging with Carl Pillimer. It seems to me, Carl, that society has this fixation with remaining independent as we get older. However, there is another side to the equation, isn't there? One where achieving quality of life in our latter years is reliant on being interdependent. Many of our listeners may not be familiar with this term, especially in the context that we will be using it in today. So let's start, if you would, by actually defining exactly what we mean by interdependence and why it's so important, if not actually vital, for us to embrace it. When you think about Western culture, and in particular the United States, we have firmly ingrained in us a belief in the value of autonomy, of independence. This is an extraordinarily strong cultural norm. You know, our images of the cowboy in the West or the frontiersman, the self-made woman or the self-made man, these are extremely strong values. And we tend to value this kind of autonomy or independence more than other cultures do. And that's why when you ask older people what one of their strongest goals in later life is, it almost invariably is independence, not wanting to be dependent on another person. Now, I'm going to ask our listeners to keep two balls in the air at once, to think of two things at the same time, because we also, on the other hand, have a strong ambivalence here because we also have norms that greatly value interdependence. So we have strong norms that parents ought to help their adult children, for example, if they're in need, the idea that your family should always have your back. And we certainly have strong norms that adult children should assist their parents. So rather than just a complete love of independence or interdependence, many of us are pulled back and forth between these two norms. And I think for the rest of our conversation, that's really important to keep in mind. But by interdependence, we mean the types of connections that people have to other people, what some might call their social capital, the whole range of meaningful roles, meaningful relationships, both strong and weak social ties that people have, and the degree to which we exchange support with those. So rather than just considering ourselves as independent actors, you can look at your entire life and think of all the people on whom you are reliant for something. 
those patterns of interdependence grow and change and alter to some extent over the life course. Flows of support may go in different directions. But what we're beginning to come to is this concept of interdependence that really is critical in later life. And Colin, I want to add one last thing to that. One reason why I imagine you've chosen interdependence and why we like the term so much is that a big problem in later life is seeing older people as dependent. And we'll come back to this. Interdependence implies that if you're an older person, for example, yes, you need support and help, especially as you experience losses and especially as you experience a higher burden of chronic disease. But you as an older person can also be and often are a vital contributor to other people. Even impaired older people can be extraordinarily strong contributors to those in their family and those in their communities. So the reason why interdependence is such a valuable concept is it's not just one person helping another person. It's a reciprocal web of interdependence and relationships in which everybody benefits. And so I think that's what both social scientists and policymakers think of when they think of that concept. Has the pandemic actually intensified our need and our desire for interdependence? And if so, why? Well, Colin, we could obviously talk about that for our full hour. So I'll try to be brief. Let me just make one point. One thing that the media have done in the pandemic, and this is especially true, I think, of older people, but in general, is they tend to emphasize division. So what we hear a lot about is how people are divided, how they're angry at one another, or how they have different viewpoints about everything from masks to vaccines. But in the actual lived experience of most people during the pandemic, there has been a recognition and even a celebration of interdependence. All of us have realized, for example, how dependent we are on our neighbors who get up in the morning and work in the grocery store and work in the childcare center and work in the nursing home. We've realized how dependent we are on one another. If an older person couldn't get out the shop to have someone help them, so I think there's been a little bit of what older people who I interviewed earlier in life for another book said when they heard about the Great Depression. People learned how interdependent they were and took advantages of opportunities to express generosity. So I think we've realized with the pandemic, and especially as it affects the older population, how fragile this norm of independence is and how much we need one another. So I think, you know, despite all the negatives, a lot of people have recharged their sense of needing one another, helping one another, and engaging in reciprocal exchanges. Is this an area that has got a lot of attention from the scientific community? I'll start with a simple example that most social scientists haven't looked at. We have many, many studies of why people help others and very few studies of what it takes to be able to accept help, for example, when and how we have to accept our dependency, how we can make the most of our lives when we become dependent. So I think that that really is interesting. And that leads me into saying that most social scientists and behavioral scientists and people in public health have still not employed this overall concept of interdependence. It lies most in the policy field when people talk, for example, about the interdependence of generations. What social scientists, behavioral scientists 
do look at are specific elements of what you and I are talking about. So there's a vast scientific literature on what we would call social integration. How do people, especially as they age, stay engaged in meaningful roles and relationships? How do they not become isolated? How does their drive for independence not lead them to become, as a byproduct, alone? So people talk about those kinds of things. There's an immense literature on helping within families. So a lot of what we know about interdependence and independence takes place in the context of generations and in families and what families do for one another. So I would say, if you think of interdependence as an umbrella, the social gerontologists and public health folks have looked at a number of sub areas in that and all taken together, I think they show us some general trends in this area. So does this area actually need greater focus then? Absolutely. I think that one great example is when you go in as an older person, either for a research interview or to be assessed by, say, a clinician, one of the first things they do is find out how dependent or independent you are. They administer something like the CAPS ADL scale or some other scale that identifies you as independent in activities of daily living. What people don't do, however, is do an interdependence analysis. That is, they don't find out who are your family relationships? Who's your network of potential supporters? Who are you helping? Imagine just, for example, an older woman comes in, talks about her issues, and no one asks her or discovers the fact that she's a grandparent who has custody of her grandchild because the child's parent is in prison. We don't ask some of those questions of who older people themselves are helping. If I could give another example, we often ask people if we are assessing them or if we're doing that kind of an investigation in a clinical setting, let's say, how many family members they have. I've been doing work on estrangement in families. And one thing people rarely look at is what's the quality of those relationships? If mom has five kids, what if three of them don't have any contact with her? So we need to get much more granular as we look at older people, and especially in situations where we're trying to help them, asking these questions, who helps them, who can help them, and who's depending on them, because that can be a source of great stress for older people and occupies both their time and their mental energy. So I'd say the simple answer is we're nowhere near looking at this enough. This web of interrelationships that older people have is often ignored when it comes to understanding their needs, their service requirements, and their life plans. You mentioned earlier about not wanting to be a burden to someone. How does that play into our own embracing of the concept of interdependence? That's a great question. And let me home in just on one particular piece of it, because I think we'll come to some other areas. One of the things that that happens as people progress through the life course is that they do begin to lose different kinds of social relationships. People, if they retire, often lose work relationships. If they move, they they may lose other relationships. And as we get older, we unfortunately lose relationships through death or through disability of our significant others. It's going to sound a little bit funny, but people need to think about how they will replace relationships, how they will be able to develop new relationships 
One thing I've learned from interviewing hundreds and hundreds of older people about what makes for successful aging is the ability to stay connected and intentionally establish and develop new and helpful relationships. If I could give an example, and we can come back to it, there are great examples now of voluntary associations, and in particular, the villages concept, which I know you're aware of, in which older people come together intentionally in communities to support one another. So I'd say my major message there is it affects us a lot individually. And the same way that we are looking at our own physical health, we ought to be aware of the health and changing resilience of our social networks and be prepared to do something about it. I was very intrigued with this concept of longer shared lifetimes. Can you tell us about this and also what impact it is having on society and interdependence as a whole? Colin, that is an insightful question. And let me say, if we were in a room and I could see a show of hands, I would ask our viewers or listeners, first of all, how many of them are in their 60s? And then I would ask them to raise their hand if they still had a living parent. And you'd see a lot of hands go up because because around half, at least, of people age 60 still have a parent living. At the turn of the last century, 1900, approximately 3 to 4% of people age 60 still had a living parent. We're in the midst of one of the most important and unique demographic shifts in human history. The Both the extraordinary extension of the human lifespan, which is good news, of course, but the extraordinary expansion of what you mentioned, shared lifetime in families. So at this point, if you think of yourself as having your child at home for 18 years, your shared life experience is going to be two or three times that as adults. The modal amount of shared lifetime with our children is as adults. In many cases, if you're 30 when you had a kid, you know, and you're 50 when they leave the house, you could have 40 or 50 more years of time with them. And the same is true with our siblings. I interviewed in one of my studies, a 108-year-old woman who was in daily contact with her 105 and 103-year-old brothers. So this notion of shared lifetime in families is really, really different. Now, I know you and the folks you work with, I'm sure make this point more generally to people, say, who are considering retiring. Most people still have this old mindset that it's 60 or 65, and then I'm done. When, as Ken Dickwald and others point out, we're talking as much time in retirement as you had in the workforce. In that same way with families, we're going to have our families with us, for better or for worse, for a really long time. And the way that shared lifetime is played out is important. I know we don't have time to go into it, but it's one reason in a new book I just wrote called Fault Lines, which is about family estrangement, investing in good family relationships, and especially with our siblings and our kids, is like money in the bank for later on, because you really want to keep them close to you for a really socially integrated later life. So this shared lifetime concept in families is really revolutionary, and we're only now beginning to understand what its implications are. As more generations are alive today, we're seeing multiple generations under one roof. Is this actually creating generational conflict as the media would like us to believe? Again, if we were in a room, I would ask people to raise their hands and ask whether they had seen the streaming series called The Chair. It's an area of sensitivity for us because it portrays academic life 
completely as a generational conflict. The, with old academic geezers, it's one of the most ageist things that's ever been on television, unrelentingly ageist, showing older academics as sort of useless, pointless, but hanging on for dear life, and their younger colleagues engaging in kind of a generational warfare with them. That's very typical of the way the media portrays intergenerational relations. So this was called intergenerational equity starting in the 80s. Are we devoting all of our societal resources to so-called greedy geezers at the expense of children? And that's continued with the OK Boomer. You know, there were also T-shirts at the extreme end that you could buy with an image of the COVID-19 vaccine and the expression Boomer Remover. So really, the COVID-19 pandemic has kind of brought out some of these generational conflicts. And if I could use scientific terminology, nothing is dumber than this. I mean, this concept of a war in the generations is simply absurd from a policy side on a whole range of dimensions. I'll just say one point about it. We need to acknowledge, quite to our theme, intergenerational interdependence. So instead of generational conflict, we really have to look at generational interdependence. And I can make the argument very easily. Programs that benefits older people typically also benefit younger people. One of the beauties of the social security program is it's allowing your older relatives not to live with you because it gives them a base income and allows them to live independently. Similarly, caregiver support programs or good health care for older people frees up younger people from caring for them. And the reverse is true. Good education, good schools, good childcare benefit older people because you have well-trained people who can work with them. It benefits their own families. So a lot of us in the aging policy realm have been arguing for years that this media-generated clash of the generations is very harmful. And politically recognizing intergenerational interdependence is really key. So that's one reason why I resonated to your theme for our time together, because this is one area where it's so critical. I'm curious, Carl, how the U.S. actually compares to other cultures when it comes to social connections and interdependence among families. It's interesting because 25 years ago or 30 years ago, when I was more starting out, I could have given you a much clearer answer to that question. So I would have said, that our level of independence of generations and in families and a certain lack of intergenerational solidarity, I would say is characteristic of Western cultures, us and Europe in particular, especially Northern Europe, where studies in Europe show strong differences, even still between Northern Europe and Southern Europe. I would have argued that in a lot of other cultures are much more family oriented and much more collectively oriented so that there is much more of a sense of groups of people taking care of one another. That's still the case in a number of cultures. It's true in Asian countries, and it's also true in, in the Southern Hemisphere and Southern Europe. But I think a lot of these countries are becoming more similar to the Western pattern. And I bet you and your uh, ICAA folks are well aware, and probably some are involved with the growth in nursing homes or in assisted living and senior living, in countries that never had it. Countries like China are being forced to invest in it heavily because of geographic mobility of children. So it's still the case that we are more independent-minded, less collective, 
and less likely, for example, to still live in intergenerational households. But I think that's changing globally. And a lot of the analysis is that, for better or for worse, other countries that weren't this way are becoming more like us. Today, we know that there are fewer children and families, more divorces, and more people who are living by themselves as they get older. How is this actually impacting our long-term support system? You remember earlier on, I told our listeners that they were going to have to do something that we all find a little challenging, which is to keep two different ideas in their minds at the same time. You remember Harry Truman said he wanted a one-armed economist because all the economists in his administration kept saying on the one hand and on the other hand. Well, that is very true with aging because very often you do find not just one trend, but two trends that are dynamic that are in interplay with one another. And that's very true with exactly what you're saying. On the one hand, there's no question from all the data we have that families matter in our society, that contrary to what you hear in the media about the family breaking down and the end of the family, for most people in any kind of survey we do, their family relationships are critically important. And the family still for most people in the famous words of Robert Frost, He defined family as when you go there, they have to take you in. And that really still is the case that when our lives get extraordinarily difficult, most people tend to rely on their family. And these are some of the most stable relationships people have. So that's the one side. On the other hand, as it comes to the future of the older population, the changes in the family are definitely contributing to what's going to be a massive elder care crisis. We're still stuck in the model of the baby boom generation. My parents typically had three, four, five, or more kids. So caregiving responsibilities could be divided among them. And the parents of the boomers were much more likely to enter old age in an intact marriage. Now the boomers and beyond are much more likely to enter old age unmarried and with two, one, or zero children. Most of those children don't live near them. So we do have a situation where long-established reliance on family care, that, you know, the unmarried daughter or the son who's, you know, has, has fewer other opportunities is going to come back and care. This is no longer viable. Instead, we have what have been called beanpole families, long distances between the generations and only a couple of people in each generation. And Colin, I will tell you, It's not something that you can get politicians excited about, this old age care crisis. Combine what I just told you with the explosion in Alzheimer's disease, which we're standing on the brink of, and you're going to have to have a very different way of caring for people than we've had. I mean, I have two professional daughters who I love very much. I'm not going to want them to give up their lives to come and care for us. And I think a lot of people in my age range feel the same way. So different structures have to evolve. There's good news to some extent in what Congress is working on because it so emphasizes long-term care services and supports and alternative types of care. But yeah, that that change in family structure is far-reaching, important, and we're just beginning now to see how profoundly it may affect elder care. You mentioned about the government taking action. In Japan, as an example, One of the things that they've done due to the lack of caregivers is to incentivize individuals to connect with their neighbors while they're out in the park exercising. The goal, 
to connect neighbors so that they can rely on each other, thus interdependence. The incentive, food. How can policy support this kind of thinking? Or are we already supporting this kind of thinking? We've got a knowledge gap here, Colin, I will say, that I think is really important to acknowledge. And here's what it is. As you can imagine, if you were to go, say, on Google Scholar and you type up social isolation in older people, you'll find thousands of articles. So this has been widely studied, and we know its negative consequences. What's problematic is that we don't have evidence for good interventions to overcome it. It's really surprisingly, but if you look at the kinds of reviews scientists do that look at all the available literature, artificially creating links between people in middle age and beyond just haven't worked that well. Plans to bring people together, to create buddy systems, to have phone networks, they just haven't worked as well as they should. And the answer is that we don't really know why. What has worked better is a little bit what you're describing, helping people in their own naturally occurring situations to develop more relationships. So for example, a beautiful example are senior centers. Now, as your members are aware, every senior center has changed its name because no baby boomer is willing to be seen near something called a senior center. And so they have names like lifelong, like in my community. But those are situations where people come together naturally for activities. You know, there have also been studies as a small example, because people find it hard to create new relationships. One of the recommendations some social scientists have is reactivate old ones, which of course a number of people have done during COVID, right? You know, I've heard from old friends. So they do urge people to be creative in how they create these links. But I would say right now, a major priority for researchers who are looking at this issue of isolation and loneliness among older people is what can we really do that's effective? What really helps a person whose only problem is that they're becoming progressively more isolated as they grow older? I wish I could say we had better solutions, and maybe some of your listeners will have good ideas, but it's an area where people are pretty perplexed because a lot of the interventions we have don't work as well as we would think they should. We talked about the policy level as well as the personal level, but what about a healthcare level? Does the current healthcare model recognize the importance of interdependence? And if so, what are they doing to support it? And if not, what could they do? It's just starting in other countries. England has led the way in this with their concept of a social prescription. You know, this began when doctors began to issue, quote, prescriptions for exercise. Now they are in some cases, especially in the UK, they will actually write a prescription, attend the senior center, link with other people. Sometimes when that message comes from your physician, it can be a powerful one. It's a problem. And we're discovering it in our own studies. We do a lot of work on how, for example, caregivers can communicate better with doctors or how people can be better prepared if they're older to have discussions with their physician. Our reimbursement structure doesn't pay for doctors to have or nurses to have long conversations about a person's isolation and loneliness. And it doesn't usually provide for an assessment. I think an excellent thing to do, a strong, small thing we could do would be something like a simple checklist where a health provider would ask the person 
a few of the questions that we know are really diagnostic, like, do you feel that you have someone with whom you can discuss a personal problem? Is there at least one person you can trust and confide in? Those kinds of questions are very diagnostic of serious problems in a person's social network. So a small intervention would be to start even way back, get healthcare professionals in a position where they can ask about this. Here's why it's important if you're isolated, really isolated, one of the only places where you may encounter somebody who could talk to you about it is during a health visit. So I think there is a movement to get doctors, nurses, other practitioners involved in some kind of simple assessment of the social network. And I think that would be hugely helpful. Even asking a simple question, do you feel lonely a lot of the time, would really be helpful in these kinds of situations. So I think you're right. The health consequences are huge and a front line could be health practitioners. Do you see the pandemic impacting this? I agree with you that the pandemic is going to have an influence. I really do. So I know there are a few silver linings from the pandemic. One of them, though, is, as we touched on earlier, this recognition, first, of interdependence, and second, of the perils of actual isolation. Older people in assisted living and senior living in general became extraordinarily isolated, almost in solitary confinement. And that was extraordinarily challenging. I know that social media and video conferencing, et cetera, is a double-edged sword. And I also know how many people are tired of Zoom meetings. I do think one positive outcome of this, however, is the ability of older people, especially those who may be homebound, to connect via social media. Many people who were not using it or weren't familiar with it began to use Zoom and other platforms. Many senior centers and other organizations started to engage their members more. So I think that that's one area that's going to be helpful. You know, the level of on-demand video conferencing, which even 10 years ago seemed like a big deal, now having it as available as your own laptop, I think that's one learning from the pandemic that is going to help older people emerge from some isolation. I hope that that will continue to develop and people will continue to use it. I've been involved in activities where just during the pandemic, there were older people who would not have attended a meeting at night, for example, have joined in. So I think there's a little bit of hope there that these new technologies can link people a little better. So that's one aspect of it, Carl. But how do you think the digital landscape is either supporting or eroding interdependence? Well, if I may quote, of all people, Sigmund Freud, in his civilization and its discontents, he has the following example. He's talking about, you know, the issues of modern society. And he says, wow, back in his day, we're talking, you know, 150 years ago, how wonderful it is I can take the train to see my child who's hundreds of miles away, or that I could do a telegram. And he says, however, if society hadn't involved like it had, your child would be living next door to you and you wouldn't have to go visit them. That same analogy is kind of true here. And it is, you know, the double-edged sword of the digital world and social media. Most psychologists have established that there are limits to what we can get out of the kind of impersonal contact that we get through social media interactions. And as I'm sure a number of our listeners are aware, there's been research showing that really heavy users of, say, Facebook or other social media may actually get more depressed from it or have 
lower psychological well-being for a number of reasons, because they are either feeling left out or depressed from what they read, or because they become so engaged in it that they stop seeking out, or at least seek out less, actual in-person contact. So I think we have a double-edged sword with social media. That said, I think it's critical for older people to really understand and be engaged in social media. I know that Ken Dykewald also says the same thing, that stop being the curmudgeon, oh, I don't understand it, I don't understand what Twitter is or what TikTok is. Using the benefits of these social media platforms to stay engaged is useful. I think it's a question of degree. Where the research shows it's not terrific is if you're spending eight hours a day on Facebook and not going to play cards in the senior center or some other or volunteering or some other meaningful activity. And that's true across the lifespan, of course, not just for older people. Do we see ageism in social media impacting our self-perceptions? Or is this just my crazy hypothesis? I think it's a great hypothesis. And it's one I'm not sure if anyone is studying it. If they aren't, I think they absolutely should be. There's no question from studies of race and gender that these little microaggressions, little negative things do affect people's well-being after they encounter them. And there are such unremittingly ageist stereotypes perpetrated on social media. I mean, really during the last campaign, because the age of the candidates, you couldn't avoid it. it there was a continual barrage of ageist messaging, and that occurred to her during COVID-19. So you're right, you can't really filter out those problems. I'll give you another example from studies we've done of family conflict and estrangement. Seems great to be on that family Facebook group until people start to argue bitterly with one another. And that can affect older people's psychological well-being. I think people need to use it judiciously and to be careful and to know when to withdraw when some of those things get more challenging. But I think you're absolutely right that it's it's an open field for ageism because nobody even complains about it. It's really astonishing. On social media, we see people saying things that, well, we probably wouldn't say to someone in person. I'm assuming that this holds true among family members as well. If so, what impact does this have on the family dynamic? Well, let me share in this book called Fault Lines that I did recently, I really learned the importance of social media in family rifts. On the one hand, sometimes people can mend a family rift or reach out to a person on social media, but I was astonished at how many serious family conflicts or almost cutoffs between siblings or between parents and children, where the precipitating event was an errant tweet, text, a Facebook message. I think you're absolutely right. The immediacy of communication and the inability to take it right back is hard. Now, I'm not sure how studied this has been, but especially with people over 70, I think they are at a disadvantage in that sense. People who are older are much more used to communicating in in full sentences via letters or via email, and they often aren't used to the kind of repartee that develops in these groups. So that I do think that more digital literacy for older people would be very useful. I've been part of a project that helps adolescents navigate 
using the web and using social media creates a simulated environment. And, and they're now thinking about it for people, especially 75 and beyond, who are still relatively newer to it. I think we do need work along those lines, Colin. I think it would be very fertile for research and intervention to make sure people aren't being upset. And we also know the dramatic increase of scams against older people are hugely facilitated by the internet. So it's great, but it's the kind of thing people need, I think, help and training and understanding and how to maximize their quality of life using it. In so many countries around the world, there's such a focus on independence. And there are many policies to support this effort. What can we actually do to create an infrastructure that supports interdependence? There are so many levels on which one could approach that. So I think part of it, let me just give a few ideas. And again, if we had a longer time, it would be interesting to exchange ideas with our audience. One is the sense of a bully pulpit that politicians and others need to avoid this generational debate idea that we need to work on this sense that if older people benefit, others don't. I think that policies that are age interdependent, if we can think about it in that way, it's going to be massively beneficial. Let's just take one example, since you offered me a broad palette on which to draw. We could conceptualize caregiving, not as elder caregiving, but as caregiving for people who need assistance in any way. Our policy could approach elder caregiving, child caregiving, and care for dependent younger people or impaired younger people as part of a general policy for how do we care for vulnerable people in our society. There are crossover areas like that where we could simply be thinking differently and promoting policies that are not age-specific, but are age-integrated. So I think that's one piece. I think another piece that, that we could promote, now it's going to sound a little bit more like a practice suggestion than a policy one, but I think our government, both state, local, national, could promote our actual intergenerational programs. So programs where younger people and older people are brought together outside of the family into meaningful activities. We did a recent review that was published in the American Journal of Public Health asking the question, can you have programs that are delivered to younger people that reduce their ageist attitudes? And we found that these intergenerational programs have a profound positive effect on ageist attitudes. I wanna make a point here that it's one I really wanted to make sure that, that we talked about in this context. We're in the midst of a dangerous experiment in our society in which younger people have almost no contact with an older person outside of occasional interactions in their own family. I would hold that our society has become increasingly age segregated and is one of the most age segregated in history. And if anyone doesn't believe me, I want to ask you, when's the last time a 27-year-old you knew had pizza and beer and a football game and invited over his 82-year-old close personal friend Research shows us that people are more likely to have a close personal friend of a different race than they are to have a close personal friend who's 10 years younger or 10 years older than they are. So we live in a very age stratified society. And there's a little bit of that because older people are increasingly self-segregating residentially. 
but it's happening for all kinds of other reasons. It's hard to put that genie back in the bottle, but we have to try because we're entering an aging society and to have old, to have young people have such limited understanding of the realities of later life, I think, as I said, is a dangerous experiment and one we could later regret. What can we actually do to address this? I'll say there are three levels in which we can address this. One is structural. So our policies should encourage age integration and should fight against age discrimination. In our country, we have the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, for example, which protects older workers. Many countries don't. But also our policies need to reflect an opposition to structural ageism and an inclusiveness. And the same is true at the individual level. In the same way that we are educating people and training them and working with them to avoid other isms, it's really critical that we have a better technology, better programs to work with young people, expose them to older people and the reality of aging. Third, there are great things local communities can do. One of these is, is, are things like co-housing, projects that actually integrate older and younger people into the same living community. There are about 40 communities or so that have those kinds of projects or programs. We actually have one near me. We have a co-housing project that deliberately integrates older people and younger people. I think we've got to start at the policy level, but also hands-on at the local level, developing intergenerational opportunities, bringing folks together, partnering between agencies and universities to help to bring this about, and you know, creating age-friendly communities in which older people can participate fully. And I'm sure listeners probably know about the age-friendly community movement. That's a huge asset in this entire area. What do you think about senior living communities, Carl? I mean, how do they play into all of this, the good, the bad, and, well, the ugly? I'm tempted to give you one of my on the one hand and on the other hand, but I will will a little bit. On the one hand, they do create what is essentially an age-segregated environment. Now, in some ways, though, that is not entirely bad. One thing that a hundred years of research has shown us is that people in general like to be around other people who are broadly similar to them in values, in circumstances. And it's true that older people can feel quite comfortable in an environment where there are people who've been through similar life experiences, share similar cultural knowledge. That's one reason why those communities are so successful. Second, studies have shown that most people in them do really like them. So I've become an advocate, I have to say, of senior living in that sense. The one thing it does solve for most people who enter them is the kind of crippling social isolation that people trying to struggle along, especially with some impairment experience at home. And in the studies we've done over and over, people might have been initially reluctant, but then are extremely happy They've chosen a senior living community where we fall apart or where we fall down in this is integrating those communities into the larger world. There are some obvious ways to do it. One of our local senior living communities has a daycare center in which residents are extremely helpful and involved, partnerships with schools, other kinds of things. The only problem with senior living is its affordability. As a concept and an idea, it really does help people age in community. Everybody wants to age in place, but a more logical thing for most people is aging in community. 
where you have a lot of people around. It's a really good concept, but what we haven't really understood is how to keep those people integrated with younger populations. As you can tell, I'm very curious about a lot of this stuff. So I'm curious whether rewarding inclusiveness on a multitude of different levels for the sake of this conversation, let's say the corporate environment, would this have a positive impact between generations? That's a brilliant question. And I think where we see age segregation so dramatically, even if it's illegal, is in the workplace. I'll just give one quick example. By writing a couple of books, I've gotten to do a couple of things that for a stodgy you know, college professor were interesting. And one was being interviewed by a senior editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine. I would ask your audience how old they think the senior editor was. And the answer was 27. There was almost no one in the organization who was over 40. And that's getting increasingly true in a lot of industries. And bizarrely, at a time when there's an incredible demand for workers, there's no question that regardless of protections against age discrimination, which aren't as strong as they should be, age-inclusive workplaces are more an idea than an actual fact. Now, some of that is changing. For example, there are internship programs for people in midlife and beyond. There are attempts, you know, to reintegrate older workers and some diversity type training that addresses this issue. One place where we could control this to a certain extent and make headway would be age inclusivity in in workplaces. And that would be a great place to start. So let me give you a loaded question. Is interdependence the elixir for a meaningful life? If you gave that to me as a true-false question, I would say yes, or yes, it is a strong part of the elixir for a meaningful life. And let me give you why I spent 10 years interviewing about 1,200 of the oldest Americans about their lessons for living. And this notion of social connection, of interconnectedness and interdependence came out very, very strongly in their advice for people about growing older. It was one of their strongest pieces of advice, and they made an important distinction. They said, as you grow older, your social connections may become compromised, and you've got to learn to be social to some degree. So you don't have to, they told me, become a backslapping extrovert and the friend of everybody. But you do have to be able to connect. You have to be able to replace relationships you've lost and find some meaningful connection. The second thing they told me, which is so critical, we know psychologically, and I'm sure you know, that the main characteristic of later life psychologically is a phenomenon called generativity. As we grow older, we experience a natural process of wanting to help leave a better world that we ourselves won't live to see. Involvement in volunteering has been found to be life-extending, health-extending. So if people are feeling isolated, moving themselves into giving activities is profoundly helpful. So I do think there are people who are introverts, completely fine. There are individual differences. But in general, uh, the effort to stay connected in some meaningful way and to be able to be the one who's giving rather than receiving help, so it's true interdependence, really is like money in the bank for healthier later life. And if people have difficulty doing it, you know, it's the kind of skills 
they can actually develop. Is there a therapeutic benefit to all of this? Absolutely. I mean, look, our social relationships can also cause us stress and difficulty. But the one nice thing in later life is you have much more choice. I mean, one of the things that we know about older people is a phenomenon called, and I love this term, socio-emotional selectivity. And what that means is as you get older, you get better at choosing more positive relationships. And people can maximize that tendency. But there is a therapeutic aspect in these social connections. So I, I think it harkens back to a point you made, maybe it's good, you know, like a good place. Seeing this as a situation that health professionals and other helping professionals can work with older people to deal with seems to me to be very important because it has such a profound impact on human health and well-being to have these ties. Look, a famous sociologist said, one thing human beings are hardwired for, one thing that makes us human is interconnection. I mean, we really, it's how we evolved to be who we are is because we are a social species and we rely on these connections for our sense of stability in the world. So working as providers, as researchers, and as individuals to stay interdependent and understand what that means, I think is hugely important. Well, fantastic insights as always, Carl. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Colin, for having me. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure, Carl. So what did we learn today from Dr. Carl Pillimer? Here's my top 10 list. Number one, interdependence means the types of connections that people have to other people that are meaningful. Meaningful exchanges is really what it's all about. However, it's not just about one person helping another person. It's a reciprocal web of interdependence and relationships in which everybody benefits. As an example, we are, all of us, dependent on our neighbors who get up in the morning and work as a firefighter, as a policeman, as a grocery store clerk, person who takes care of our children at childcare, or who works in a nursing home. That's interdependence. Number two, the web of interrelationships that older adults have is often ignored when it comes to understanding their needs, their service requirements, and their life plans. There's an immense opportunity for those who, well, actually choose to fill this gap. Number three, it's important to understand that our patterns of interdependence grow and change to some extent over the life course. Number four, as we get older, we experience greater loss to our social structure, including loss of family, friends, and colleagues. Because of this, it would be beneficial to build new relationships or reignite old ones throughout our lives. Number five, probably one of the most interesting things I found in this conversation is that we are now experiencing this extraordinary expansion of what is called shared lifetimes in families. We're going to have our families with us, for better or worse, for a long time. And the way that that shared lifetime is played out is going to be extremely important. Investing in good family relationships, and especially with our siblings and our kids, is like money in the bank for later. Why? Because you really want to keep them close to you for a socially integrated life later on. So, 
This shared lifetime concept in families is revolutionary, according to Pilmer, and I think it's absolutely fascinating. The question is, what do we do with it? Number six, for most people, in any kind of survey done by Pilmer, family relationships are critically important. They are some of the most stable relationships people have. However, change in family structures are far-reaching. It is also important to note that we are just beginning to see how profoundly this may impact care for each and every one of us as we get older. As an example, boomers and beyond are much more likely to enter older age unmarried with fewer children. And most of those children don't live near them. So, yes, we have a situation in front of us where long-established reliance and family care the unmarried daughter or son, is actually no longer viable. Number seven, we can find thousands of articles in social isolation in older people and its negative consequences, by the way. Evidence is lacking for good interventions to overcome social isolation. We need to have a greater focus, not just on the problems, but on researching and implementing effective solutions. Number eight, we need to encourage, create, and implement policies in a variety of settings that encourage and reward interdependence and intergenerational support. Number nine, we're in the midst of a dangerous experiment in society, one in which younger people have almost no contact with older people, outside of, of course, an occasional interaction within their family. Pilmer contends that our society has become increasingly age-segregated and is one of the most age-segregated in history. It is time to change this for the betterment of everyone. Number 10. After interviewing 1,200 of the oldest Americans about their lessons about living, the notion of social connection, of interconnectedness, and interdependence came out very strong in their advice to people about growing older. However, they made an important distinction. They said, as we grow older, our social connections may become compromised, and we've got to learn to be, well, social to some degree. That's what we learned today from Dr. Carl Pilmer. A special thanks to Humana for their support in bringing this episode to you originally, during Active Aging Week. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me at colinmilner at rethinkaging.co. Until next we meet, stay well. Stay well.